Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Have you heard about Met Naturals? We have all heard about CBD in its many forms, but how do you know the difference between quality? The difference begins at the farm with organic best practices and traceability from seed to shelf. Have you tried CBD? Many people have tried but didn't enjoy the experience or had an experience that they didn't feel anything. Love your CBD. Better yet, utilize it daily for ailments with pain, inflammation, anxiety, or sleep. Met Naturals is the brand that has thoughtfully created products with you in mind. Met Naturals begins our plant-based care by testing all soil to the billionth particle. They never use herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, insecticides in their growing practices and have third-party testing at every stage of the process. Learn the difference and love your results. Pure, simple, and transparent. Use code JUSTINGREDIENTS for 10% off at www.metnaturals.com. Again, that's code JUSTINGREDIENTS for 10% off. Dr. Jolene Brighton is a women's hormone expert and prominent leader in women's medicine. As a licensed naturopathic physician who is board certified in naturopathic endocrinology and clinical sexologist, she takes an integrative approach in her clinical practice. A fierce patient advocate and completely dedicated to uncovering the root cause of hormonal imbalances. Dr. Brighton empowers women worldwide to take control of their health and their hormones through her website and social media channels. She is the best-selling author of Beyond the Pill and Healing Your Body Naturally After Childbirth. Dr. Brighton is an international speaker, clinical educator, medical advisor within the tech community, and considered a leading authority on women's health. She is a member of the Mind Body Green Collective and the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Dr. Brighton serves as a faculty member for the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Her work has been featured in the New York Post, Forbes, Cosmopolitan, Huffington Post, Bustle, The Guardian, Sports Illustrated, Elle, and ABC News. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I am really honored to have our guests here, and I know so many of you are going to be so excited for this podcast because so many of my followers for like a year have asked and asked and asked if Dr. Jolene Brighton would come on to the show, and so she is here today, so thank you so much, Dr. Brighton, for being here today. It's about that time, right? <laughs> thank you so much for having me, but yeah, after... Under all the tags on social media, we're like, we have to make this thing happen. Uh, the people have asked, let's give them what they want. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you. I know you're extremely busy and a new mom and things like that. So thank you. I shouldn't say new mom. I should say an, another child. I know. It's kind of weird. Like, what do, what do you say? Because I have a, my oldest just turned 10 and then my youngest just hit 19 months. Um, so it kind of is like being a new mom all over again because I'm like, um, I'm heading into this preteen vibe. There's definitely little testosterone pulses happening in the oldest one, um, which are also happening in the toddler, but they just manifest in different ways. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, congratulations on the 19-month-old. And will you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and your background with studying hormones? So I am a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist, which means that I take a very integrative approach. And because I have a background in nutrition science as well and, and chemistry, um, I'm very much a food-first kind of doctor, which I think is a, a rarity and something we need a lot more of. And I work in women's health and women's hormones because um, getting a degree and then going into medicine and seeing these complex uh, biochemical pathways just lit me up. And I was like, let's do more of that. So I help women you know, with conditions like TCUS, infertility, hypothyroidism being a big one, adrenal issues. And when I say help, it really is helping them decode, understand their body and being able to put all the puzzle pieces together so that they can truly heal themselves and the work that I do clinically also transfers into my book. So I'm also an author. 
Uh, we're going to talk definitely about birth control today. It's I've written Beyond the Pill, and my new book, Is This Normal? is literally everything I've ever been asked by patients about. Is this normal? Down there, up there, in the bedroom, um, in the bathroom, everything in between. Well, I am so excited for your new book. I know it doesn't come out until April, right? Correct. Yes, the beginning of April. But for everybody who's driving now, actually put together a digital cookbook that's all geared at helping you balance your hormones and optimize them. Um, so it's got recipes, it's got a four-week meal plan. And so if you pre-order the book, you can go to drbrighton.com slash is this normal and you can grab that free digital cookbook. That is going to be amazing. As soon as it comes out as well, I will be telling people about it, sharing about it, because I know it's going to be a fabulous book after reading your first book. Um, but let's talk about things that are normal or not normal, because um, let's talk about hormonal imbalance. Is that something that's normal? Actually, let's say this. Is hormonal imbalance normal? Like, are so many people having hormonal issues that it's now normal? Yeah, okay. So it, it depends on how we're defining this, because hormones are imbalanced uh, throughout the menstrual cycle, so to speak, right? So sometimes people will say, oh, well, hormone imbalances are normal because estrogen should be high in the follicular phase and it should be lower taking a backseat to progesterone in the luteal. But this is not what women are talking about. When women are saying hormone imbalance, my job as a physician is to understand what are what are they talking about here? And sometimes that looks like things like hypothyroidism, very, very common endocrine or hormone issue in which you may feel fatigued, you're losing hair, you have dry skin, you're constipated, your period is getting off. And no, that's not normal. Feeling like you're crawling in your skin, you're going to lose your mind, you're crying, you're irritable, um, you have breast tenderness, you're bloated before your period. That's not normal. That's a sign of a hormone imbalance. And so um, there's a lot of ways that hormone imbalances show up. And I don't think we should ever categorize this as normal. Is it normal to experience a hormone imbalance if life has been really stressful, if uh, you've gotten an infection, if like different things happen? Yes, that's normal to experience that, but it's not a normal state to exist in. Does that make sense when I frame it that way? Yes, that's perfect. I like to tell my followers that it's not normal, it's common. It's common, but mm -hmm. it shouldn't be normal. And so why do you think hormonal imbalance issues are so common these days? Well, you know, Bex, so I've got some, some theories and some science to back up of like, why is it more common? But I think we also have to recognize that um, the internet exists. So I don't know how old you are, but when I was growing up, I didn't have... Okay, so I had... Estrogen excess issues, I had really heavy periods, I had, um, you know, just terrible PMS, cramps, the whole works. Those were all hormone imbalance symptoms, but the best I could do was go to the library and try to find a book like about this. There was no internet. And so women having access to information, as they should, and I will always advocate for, has really helped them understand what is true and isn't true for them in their experience, what their normal is, and, and what things should be like. I, there's a lot of things that have been handed around from generation to generation, like, and a lot of doctors passing myths, like periods should just be painful, like they're horrible, that's the way it is. And that's simply not true. So there is this awareness, and more women advocating for themselves. But there is also changes in our environment. So we are definitely more stressed out than we have been historically. And that's because we've got an evolutionary mismatch. Like we we were designed to have sprints of stress and instead we have marathons of stress. So that's going to impact our hormones. Our environment is, it's arguably the most toxic that it has ever been. Um, and that, you know, it's very interesting because what's being measured is really a very simple thing, much simpler than measuring women is sperm count. And we're seeing, you know, there's been like a 60% decline. Like men today have less sperm than their grandfathers did. Um, that's environmental toxins impacting men's health. So you better believe that is impacting women's health as well. And then there's the nutrient issue that we face. We live, so everybody understands this. Um, you are designed to seek out the most nutrient dense, which is in, in the environment, in the natural world, that's the most calorically dense. You are programmed for that. Your system really loves that. And food scientists know this. 
Um, I studied food science as part of my nutrition degree. Food scientists are really smart at making your brain say, oh, this is good. Good job. Like dopamine's going off. Reward centers are like, you ate a bag of Doritos. You did good work in seeking that out. Except these are void of nutrients. And so there's that mismatch in our environment as well. So there's a lot of factors coming into play of why we're seeing more hormonal issues come up, why women are experiencing that. And then there's the awareness around it. That is a lot and a lot for people to take is, in. Right? But let's talk about the environmental toxins with the sperm dropping, because these are things like your body lotion and your shampoo and glass mm -hmm. or plastic containers in your kitchen, right? Things like that, that you're talking about. Absolutely. So there's microplastics in our environment now. We understand this. They're, I mean, they're, they're, it is really troubling how many, how much plastic is just in our environment overall. Um, that is playing a role. The, the things that we are exposed to in our house. So it, this is where like, there's sometimes I get to reading research and even at this point, like it'll keep me up at some nights where, I mean, I have kids, I have boys, I have boys. There will be sperm producers in the future. Like what is their fertility going to be like? What is my menopause journey going to be like? Like I have all of these thoughts in my head and they just want to honor anyone else who feels overwhelmed by this kind of conversation that I am there with you at times. And so the best thing you can do is look at what are you in control of? We recognize the body is very good at detoxifying and it's even better at detoxifying when it's not overburdened and it's not overwhelmed. And so with what you were saying, like what is in your kitchen environment throughout the plastics? Don't store stuff in plastic. Don't cook in plastic. Don't drink out of plastic. Let's get it. Like I tell people all the time, like I just reuse like mason jar, like pasta jars, sauce jars. I reuse those things. And um, somebody actually the other day was like, you're you're one of those crunchy moms, as if that's like a bad thing of like people who want to avoid environmental toxins is like this bad thing. And I was like, why do you say that? And they're like, because you drink out of mason jars. I'm like, I'm just recycling and reusing what I have. And then as you talked about the personal care products, that's a really big one for women. So Whenever, so one, you will see critics of this. And whenever I see people saying like, well, they've studied this and, you know, this is a small amount in this product. It's not a big deal. I'm like, no, but what they didn't study is that that ingredient is showing up in 12 different products that you are applying every single day over the course of your lifetime. We know that women are starting using makeup and these personal care products younger and younger and younger. And with that, nobody is setting what the lifetime exposure is and what the compound exposure is. That is multiple products having these ingredients, which they do. I have curly hair for everybody listening. If you are a Latina like me or you have like curly hair, like we, the products for us, they always have fragrance. I don't know why people think that I want to smell like anything but me, but like they have fragrance in them. When you look at the ingredients, they're really problematic. And that's just what I've got to put in my hair to shampoo, to condition, to like make it so it's not this big, fuzzy, huge, uh, like I don't look like a big Q-tip uh, <laughs> kind of thing. And so, you know, there's a lot of ways that these environmental toxins come in. It can feel overwhelming, but we know that the biggest place that you can have an impact is within your own home. And that's where we're exposed to the most. And that's where we can keep the most out. Simple things like taking off your shoes before you come inside can have a profound effect. I love that. I love that we can take control of the things in different parts of our house, different rooms of our house. So thank you for sharing that. To me, it's crazy, though, that more people don't understand what it's doing to their hormones, to fertility, you know, all sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, you know, it's, well, I mean, it's complex, <laughs> right? So one, there's been a lot of dampening of the science, suppressing the science, not having the science come out. Then you've got medical providers who are trained and told the same dogmatic thing, which is like, oh, it's so little, it doesn't matter. It's not going to have that big of an impact. And everybody who works with hormones and even like reproductive endocrinologists who are working with infertility patients are all like, no, 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 no. This is problematic. Look at the research. But then we've got a split in medicine where like dermatologists are like, oh, it's fine. It's fine to put this on your skin. Um, you know, you're not going to absorb that much. And I'm like, yeah, but like I do deliver hormones. I can prescribe hormones to be put on your skin and you'll absorb it because it is really absorbent. 
Um, it is a good way to deliver uh, hormones. And when we're talking about the chemicals that are a problem, they're endocrine disruptors. They're like hormone substances. And sometimes they come on and they block the receptors. So you can't get your hormones on there or they stimulate the receptors. So now they're acting like a hormone or they start to shut down production of certain hormones. This is, you know, one of the reasons why we see men's testosterone levels. It's another thing. Uh, you know, I, I work in women's health, but it's always like the male studies that gets the news attention. And they're like, Oh, men's testosterone is lower. Yeah. Because these environmental toxins are estrogen mimickers and they're, they're in there, they're blocking and squashing the hormones that you need. So there's that piece. And what I find really interesting is that if you look at the research on flame retardants, so flame retardants, mattresses, babies' mattresses, uh, couches, pets' beds, um, these flame retardants, these chemicals in particular, were well-documented in veterinary medicine to impact the thyroid health of animals. So our animals. So who spends time on the ground in your house? Dogs, cats babies okay so um and i'm like where are the studies about the babies who are are you know on the ground being exposed to these flame retardants because they do come out of these products they are in the dust on the ground this is again way that you can take care of your home but in dogs we saw hypothyroidism and in cats we saw hyperthyroidism then you know a decade ago i'm out there saying hey if you have a thyroid issue, get rid of flame retardants. Like try not to buy new furniture with flame retardants. Don't, the pajamas with flame retardants, keep those off your kids. People are like, you're quack, you're crazy. I'm like, but look at the look at the research in pets. Look at what we're seeing. And it's not just thyroid disease, it's autoimmune thyroid disease. And what are women disproportionately affected with? It's autoimmune thyroid disease. And now here we are a decade later and it's being well-documented that there are issues with thyroid health, that these flame retardants also increase oxidative stress in the ovaries, which is going to impair and impact egg quality, but also your ovaries ability to produce estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. And so I think too often, um, the way the United States really addresses uh, chemicals in our environment is they look at it from a when enough harm is done, we will investigate and do something about it. And that is very problematic. This retrospective approach is very problematic because as we see, we have let so many things in our environments, like forever chemicals. I was, I remember when I was talking about environmental toxins like a decade ago, and people were like, you're crazy, you're fear-mongering, you're scaring people. I'm like, giving people like information is not fear-mongering, especially when you're giving them solutions. And secondly, the audacity of medical providers to think that they get to decide what to withhold from people and what to share with people is astounding to me. But here we are now, understanding forever chemicals in our environments, understanding all of the ways that we have impacted not just the people that are here today, but our people, our ability to make people in the future and make healthy people in the future, which again, as a mom, I'm not thrilled about this. Yeah, I feel like the pendulum maybe is now swinging the other direction. I feel like people are awakening up to all of this and more and more are understanding how it's affecting our health. So I'm hoping that people like you and other doctors, we can just keep educating and that pendulum can swing to the other side and we can start, you know, being more healthy as a society. So absolutely. Let me go back to hormones. Now we know all the different mm -hmm. things that affect hormones. How do women know if they really have a hormonal imbalance? Is it something they go get tested or they just know? Yeah, well, okay, so it's tricky because it depends on like what's going on. Sometimes we want to test, sometimes we use, uh, you know, clinical diagnosis so that we don't need a lab test, we can observe, we understand what's happening. Um, and so it can be tricky. And in my book, Is This Normal?, I actually have a whole hormone quiz to help people understand, okay, what you know, what could possibly going, be going on, like insulin, testosterone, cortisol, your sex hormones, um, and really starting to dial that in so you know how to proceed. I also have a ton of checklists and for different conditions, but one of them is understanding, is it perimenopause? Because with perimenopause, we don't need a lab test to diagnose that. And sometimes doctors will measure an FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, 
and a progesterone. Um, but let me just say that like, because perimenopause, this is, so for everybody listening, perimenopause can start at age 35. It is basically the decline of your hormones, your fertility and the preparation period of moving into menopause. And menopause is defined by not having a period for 12 consecutive months. And so with that, it's important to understand that there's going to be ebbs and flows. So you can ma- measure an FSH and it might be super high. And that might tell you that, yes, in fact, you are going into menopause soon. But that could look different one month to the other. Same with progesterone, because it's based on whether you ovulate or not. And in perimenopause, it may be a hit or miss month with ovulation, or there might be a failure after you ovulate to be able to get progesterone levels up. So With perimenopause, we don't need a lab test to diagnose that. With menopause, we don't need a lab test to diagnose that. We need you to track your your period and to say like, no, I haven't had one for a month. Okay, you're menopause. Oh, and tomorrow you're postmenopausal. Like that's literally how that happens. When it comes to other issues, so like thyroid we've talked about, we definitely want to do lab testing to understand that. And we want to do lab testing if we think we have something like PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, because That's a diagnosis of exclusion, which means that while we have criteria that you need to meet in order to get the diagnosis of PCOS, you have to first exclude other things. Like we don't have other issues going on. For for instance, thyroid disease could look like the uh, missed periods, the lack of ovulation happening in PCOS. So um, it just depends on what we have going on. The first thing I would say is knowing if you have a hormone balance really starts with paying attention to yourself and looking at your symptoms. If you are fatigued and you're just super dragging it, it's not because you're a new mom and it's not because you're getting older. Like fatigue, there is something going on and it could be hormones or it could be anemia. Like we've got to figure out what that is. If you are experiencing symptoms around your period that are you know, problematic, like you have anxiety before your period, you have extreme cramps or heavy bleeding. This could be indicative of a progesterone estrogen imbalance. And we can test for that. And we can also start to intervene while we're waiting for those tests so that we can get those things on track. I think the problem, so one, I want to say that gaslighting is a real phenomenon in medicine and telling women that they can't possibly know their body or because there's no research study to support exactly what their experience is. It must be false. I really reject that and I hate that. And that really needs to go away um, because it's not doing anyone any favors. But in addition you know, to all of that, it has really seeded doubt that women can trust their body and trust what their body is doing, what their body's telling them. And so Tracking your symptoms, understanding what's your normal, what's not your normal, and, you know, dismissing this idea that just because it's common, just because your mom dealt with it means that you have to as well, because that's just what's normal. It's not. I love everything that you just shared. And I think women hopefully are becoming more empowered to tell doctors like, this isn't normal. I haven't always felt this way. You know, let's figure out Mm -hmm. the root cause. Yes. Something that I find trendy, I guess, right now on social media is about the adrenal glands. So do the adrenals Mm -hmm. play a role in hormones? Oh, absolutely. So the adrenal glands are what I call the foundation of hormone health. So the adrenal glands, along with insulin, and if you grab, is this normal? If you're looking at it, you'll see there's a pyramid in there where I explain this. So the adrenal glands, they are great. So all of your hormones are great at interfacing with the environment and correcting their chemical messengers. And when the environment is sending certain signals, they're going to convey that throughout the body. I think it's interesting because, you know, on social media, it seems like there, there tends to be like this, like resurgent of things sometimes. Like I know on social media right now, there's like the adrenal cocktail. And so now everybody is like, oh, adrenal health, like that's back. And, you know, once upon a time, we called this adrenal fatigue, uh, what a lot of people experience. We, people still call it that. I'm not judging anybody who does, but in medicine, it's called HPA dysregulation. As we've really come to understand, it's not an adrenal problem. It's how your brain and adrenals are communicating kind of problem. And so the adrenal glands, for people who don't know, two little glands sit on top of your kidneys. They produce cortisol, aldosterone, epinephrine, norepinephrine, DHEA. All of these things are really important for like blood pressure, stress response, and also that DHT 
DHEA has the capacity to go into estrogen and testosterone. So one of your sources of estrogen and testosterone, absolutely essential when you're in menopause and your ovaries call it quits. So if your ovaries aren't making hormones, you're going to lean more on those adrenal glands. Now, those adrenal glands surveying stress and the environment, if there's any danger signals coming in or anything telling them that the environment's not safe, your brain, your adrenal, they're going to shift to survival. That means cortisol production. And in that shift, they're going to basically naked. So the, the brain uh, communication system is going to naked. So your ovaries, they're not going to be ovulating as regularly. Or if they do, they're not going to make sufficient progesterone. And so we're going to see other hormone issues come up. The same is true. You, I just want to say you can't have a thyroid issue and not have an adrenal issue. Um, both of these energetic providing systems, if you have, if you have an adrenal issue, which the, or excuse me, a thyroid issue, which the most common cause is autoimmunity, you're going to be demanding so much from those adrenal glands. And so it really all goes together, but I do feel like the adrenal glands are often such a missing piece. I mean, even when we talk about, um, sexual desire, so there's a, whole chapter on libido and orgasms and like the book is this normal is divided up into your sexual self, your cyclical self. And then there is a 28 day program in there. And when I'm talking about the sexual self, one of the things that, you know, is kind of a light bulb moment for people is that so often we focus on testosterone. Like people are like, Oh, you have low libido. It must be a testosterone issue. But a lot of times it's related back to an adrenal issue, to a stress issue, to a cortisol squashes all kind of issue. And is that because the cortisol is basically like stealing from the production of progesterone? So once upon a time, there was a theory called the pregnenolone steal. And that's how we thought this all worked. Um, and if anybody goes back, like, <laughs> it's probably like seven years ago or so, and listened to any podcasts with me, I was talking about the pregnenolone steal. So pregnenolone is a mama hormone, and she gives way to um, progesterone and the cortisol, and you can produce it from there. And we used to think like, oh, you actually steal all your pregnenolone to make cortisol at the expense of progesterone. And what we now understand is that there's mitochondrial communication happening. And so the body with all the hormones are communicating that like we have to prioritize survival. We need to downregulate the production of progesterone. And it's not that you're stealing from that model hormone and that you've only got so much to make so much. It's that the entire system is talking. Your endocrine system, is, which the hormone system is all interconnected in a way that I will tell you, it is not possible to have one hormone issue. That's why I'm like, if you have a thyroid issue, you have an adrenal issue. Um, and that's where I think people really, they face a lot of challenges and they feel like they don't get better is because they want to chase down just getting that progesterone up. And, uh, you know, they just, they just want to do this one thing. And in fact, we have to address the entire system. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I want to move on to birth control. But before we do... If someone's listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I know my hormones are just a mess, totally imbalanced. Where do you suggest yeah. people start? You know, there's like a lot of places we want to start. We want to start with like, where is the area that, you know, you can elicit the most effective change and that's most out of balance for you. And for a lot of people, it's surprising when I tell them it's sleep. And sleep is something that I just, I just feel like we just don't give it enough respect mm -hmm. and really honor it. And I say that as someone whose um, toddler still doesn't let them sleep through the night. But, you know, I have a whole diagram in Is This Normal? And I actually pulled it from um, whenever I'm lecturing and teaching uh, physicians and other clinicians, I have this diagram to really emphasize how important sleep is because we know from the studies of people who are chronically sleep deprived or have disrupted sleep or night shift workers. Um, thank you to all the night shift workers who we meet out there. And yet it doesn't look good for them. So with sleep, people are often like, oh, you'll just feel tired. Well, you can also develop insulin resistance. You'll have increased inflammation. You'll decrease your thyroid hormone production, less likely to ovulate, less likely to produce progesterone. We start to have adrenal issues. So sleep is one of those areas that I think people often, like when I say that, people are like, oh, whatever, sleep. You know, that's, you know, my mom told me to sleep. Like it, it just feels like one of those things that it's like, yes, we know, but nobody's doing it that well. So we want to sleep in a dark room, 
we don't want that melatonin just being disrupted by blue lights at night or by light coming into your room in the evening. In the evening, your cortisol should dip down, your melatonin should rise, and growth hormone's gonna come in and help do repairs. If you want more energy when you wake up, you need to avoid blue light, sleep in a dark room, get it cool. Usually 68 Fahrenheit is a, is a good place for people. And then when you wake up, expose yourself to sunlight. That light passing through your eyes it tells the pineal gland, we're done with the melatonin, the brain gets the signal to bring up the cortisol, and you can effectively shift your whole cortisol pattern and help yourself feel more energized and awake during the day and get better sleep the next night just by following this. And the, you know this might seem really simple, but the sleep component that, again, if it reduces your inflammation, that's going to take a load off your adrenal glands. You can use hormones at the cellular level better when you are less inflamed. And when inflammation is up, we take our testosterone, we convert it into estrogen. Now we're less interested in sex. We might have issues building our muscle mass and we're feeling a lot more irritable and having worse periods. So I really want to say, like, don't negate the sleep. I think it's a really, really important component along with stress reduction and then eating a nutrient-dense diet. And like I said, if you if you do want a free meal plan, recipes that are all, it's all geared to helping support your hormones and walking you through each day of a full cycle, you can go to drbrighton.com slash is this normal. But yeah, I hope people really take the sleep message seriously. Every time I talk about it, and I learned this from medical conferences where doctors are like, yeah, yeah, I talk about sleep to my patients, but they don't really want to hear it. So pull this research, put up this slide, show them everything. And I'm like, do you still think it's not that important? And I've had so many clinicians come up to me and be like, oh my God, I'm talking to every patient about their sleep. I'm like, yes, if we want to prevent chronic disease, let alone just feeling good in our hormones that make us love life, like we've got to focus on that sleep. That's so interesting. I just had a doctor on recently who was talking about weight loss. And he said the number one thing that women can do for weight loss is actually get better sleep and get quality sleep because it will help balance and regulate their hormones. And so you're saying the exact same thing. Absolutely. And, and totally. You, and not to mention that if you're inflamed, I mean, sometimes weight gain in women is just all related to hormones, but sometimes we've got water retention going on as well because of that inflammation component. Well, that's interesting. You talked about inflammation because I did have a doctor on talking about inflammation and he was saying it's a really high percentage of Americans that are dealing with inflammation that don't even know they're dealing with inflammation. So is that just mm -hmm. from you think yeah. the sleep, the stress, our diet? Sleep, stress, diet, um, you know, hidden infections. This is something that I think also gets overlooked a lot is that um, people will be like, oh yeah, I've always just had like a little bit of gas and bloating um, going on or these like little digestive things they deal with. Your gut is the seat of your immune system. You're going to find the majority of your immune cells living in your gut. And if that's out of balance, then, you know, even if it's just dysbiosis, we can have increase in, in inflammation. So it's just as simple as just telling everybody like, just do this one thing and everything will be better. Um, I would love that. But the reality is, is that we didn't develop a hormone imbalance. We didn't develop chronic disease um, by just one thing. It is really the the symphony that came together to play the song that none of us ever wanted to hear. And to shift the tune, we really have to tune all of those instruments and get, and, and by instruments, getting all of the pieces of your life together and in alignment with, you know, a better, you know, better way of supporting your hormones and supporting your health. And that doesn't look like perfection because perfection is actually really bad for your health and your hormones as well. Um, and then the, the other piece I will say that I think often goes overlooked in the inflammation conversation is actually how we talk to ourselves. And there has been research to show that when you say nice things to yourself, when you are gentle with yourself, that inflammatory proteins go down. And being self-critical, um, you know, I think it's so hard as somebody who um, you know, grew up in a, in a time where like, um, you know, the Kate Moss body was really like in, and now we've seen this swing, um, that we are now like, like, then it was like, oh, the Kardashian body. Now we're going back to Kate Moss body. And like the messaging around that for our entire lifetime 
has been, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You were born imperfect and that there's these standards, this way that you need to be. And I think there's the beauty messaging that disproportionately falls on women, but there's also the messaging just around how to be, uh, you know, how to have it all, how to be a super mom, how to be a super wife, how to be, have a super career. Like, and we take on a lot that creates a lot of stress. And then we, you know, play out these negative narratives in our mind of how we're not doing enough. And so one thing I will say that you can instantly start to shift inflammation and your hormones is to practice gratitude and how you're grateful for yourself and talking kind to yourself. And when you find yourself being like, I'm so stupid, like, why did I do this thing? Like, stop yourself and remind yourself that ain't good for your hormones. I mean, if you, if you can't, if it's psychologically, sometimes it's hard to make that shift of like, I am worthy, I am loved, all of that. But to be like, you know what? I want to wake up. I want to feel good tomorrow. This is not good for my hormones. It's not good for my body. Like make that change. That actually is incredible. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I know the science behind different foods and how they help you. And I know the science behind different chemicals. And I know about stress and all of these things. And I'm sitting here going, I don't think I have ever studied that talking nice to yourself is actually good for your inflammatory markers. I'm sort of mind blown mm-hmm. right now. No, when I came across that study, I was, I really was taken back and it really made me take inventory of my, my own health, my own life. I mean, I'm an A-type personality. And so um, talking negatively to myself was like one way I drove myself to be productive, to get things done. And, you know, I was in my thirties when I came across this research and having autoimmune disease myself, I was like, wait a minute here. You often hear clinicians say things like autoimmunity, like you're beating yourself up and that can really stem from a habit of beating yourself up to begin with. And your body's like, is that all we're doing? Then let's do it. I don't think that you should, anyone should internalize the message to be like autoimmunity is all your fault. But I think it is something that's worth uh, considering. And it's so funny, like these simple things like um, that, like I think about, uh, like shout out to Snoop Dogg who now has like his affirmations um, for kids. These things that I teach like my kids and that people, I would like more people to teach. I think, oh, I wish I had been taught this as a kid, but like these things that we focus on now with children of like celebrating who you are, talking yourself um you know all of these things that just like seem so simple have such a profound impact on our health and on our hormones like i said like it goes back to the stuff like sleep (laughs) eat your vegetables um you know to have the positive affirmations and taking just a real good look i think at like how joyful is your i mean even like how often do you sing out loud and um, as somebody who has like the worst voice in the world, let me just own for a second. I like, I am like tone deaf and I cannot sing. And my husband and his entire family are very musically inclined and uh, they all sing wonderfully. Even my kids sing wonderfully. That actually shifts inflammatory proteins. It raises feel good chemicals and hormones in your body. And it stimulates your vagus nerve, which is a nerve that innervates the brain, the heart, the gut. And that helps send the signal of like, if you put joy, then your heart's going to feel more calm. Your gut is going to have better digestion and your brain is going to have less anxiety. And as I say all of this, I just want to also mention that um, we never really needed science to like validate this or to tell us to do more of this. I think everybody intuitively already feels this. But then like something about being an adult, we just like got like the the joy got beat out of us in, in because we we're supposed to be serious and we're like, this is what it looks like to be an adult. Um, which sometimes that narrative is that it sucks to be an adult. And um you've gotta find joy in every way you can. I am so glad that you just shared all of that because as women, I think most of us really do beat ourselves up and are hard on ourselves. And so just knowing how important it is to do those positive affirmations and say nice things to ourselves. I love that it's science related and it's good for our health. So thank you so much for sharing that part. I'm actually going to move on from hormones because I have so many people that want questions answered about the pill because you are the expert in the pill. So let's move on to the birth control pill and start at the basics. Can you just tell my followers like what it does or how it works? So the oral contraceptive pill, or the pill as it's called, uh, primarily works by stopping brain ovarian communication so that you don't ovulate. So 
the, you know, if you've got an episode on brain health, please, because brain health is so, so important when it comes to hormone health, your menstrual cycle, obviously your brain. And so what happens during a non birth control menstrual cycle is that your brain will signal FSH, LH, and those hormones will tell the ovaries, get an egg ready and ovulate. So once that egg is ready, estrogen is going to spike. Then that's going to tell the brain, spike luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone says, release the egg. And then we have ovulation. While you're on the pill, none of that's going to happen because you are flooding the system with, with enough hormones that it tells the brain, don't secrete any of those hormones. And we just keep a static level of estrogen and progestin, not progesterone. That's only made after ovulation. But we keep that static level throughout the entire time that you're on there. If you um, take the placebo pills, if you stop, then those hormones are going to drop and then you're going to start again. And so the primary mechanism by how birth control prevents pregnancy is by stopping ovulation, which is great, right? If you don't want to have a baby, no egg, can't get fertilized, can't get pregnant. The secondary mechanisms is it actually alters the uterus. So the uterine lining will become thinner and you'll make thicker cervical mucus and that's going to block sperm and so just in case you happen to overcome and you ovulate we're going to block sperm so sperm can't make its way there therefore can't get pregnant and so as a way to prevent pregnancy it's a very good design and it has um, a fairly high efficacy rate if you're perfect it's 99 percent um, with the typical use, it's a bit lower than that but if you can prevent ovulation, you can prevent pregnancy. Okay, so let's talk about the symptoms of birth control, because if you know anyone on birth control, they always are complaining about either like weight gain or mood swings. So why do we have all these symptoms? What's causing this? Yeah, there's a lot of symptoms that can come up with birth control, like chronic yeast infections, um, as you were saying, the weight gain. The weight gain is an interesting one because from the research, statistically speaking, there there's no evidence to support that there's significant weight gain when you start the pill. And yet there are women who are like, I definitely gained weight when I started the pill. When I came off, I lost weight. Sometimes that's water weight because progesterone is a diuretic. Progestin is not. And so sometimes it's water weight that women are holding on to. Um, there have been studies showing that the birth control pill is inflammatory. And so as we talked before, if you have inflammation, that can also lead to water weight. So if you're someone who you go on the pill, you notice weight gain, you come off and you're like, I immediately lose, lost weight, that is likely water weight that you're experiencing. Um, and then, you know, so you had said like, you know, there, there's all these symptoms. I think one of the biggest symptoms, well, there's two big ones that women report, and that is loss of libido and mood symptoms. So like anxiety or depression. And we, I mean, when it comes to the libido piece, you are squashing your ovaries ability to make their hormones. And that's going to include testosterone. But while you're taking all those exogenous hormones, so those hormones are coming in, your body has to keep you safe. And it does that by secreting sex hormone binding globulin. So the liver is going to make more of that. And that's going to grab onto testosterone. So even if you do manage to make testosterone, you are going to bind testosterone that's around. And testosterone is one of the hormones that can affect sexual desire, also arousal, ability to orgasm. So it's kind of ironic that you take the pill so that you can have less stress around getting pregnant and be able to have sex, but then you don't want to have sex because of the way that it affects your um, libido. And there was, there's been one study. We need more studies to understand this, but um, we know DHEA, that hormone that comes from the adrenal glands I was saying can be a precursor to testosterone and estrogen. There is a study saying it may be beneficial for women who go on the pill and experience decrease in sexual desire to actually supplement with DHEA. Now, I wouldn't say go just jump on DHEA based on that, but it is really interesting to see the research now saying like, maybe we should be giving additional hormones other than just estrogen and progestin if that side effect comes up. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I'm curious. So people that are on the pill, does it affect other parts of their body besides just the hormones? Like does it affect their vitamins or their minerals or different things? 
you know, this is the thing about hormones, whether they're synthetic or your own, they affect every single system in your body. So you have receptors for estrogen throughout your body. So if you're taking estrogen or you're making estrogen, every system can be impacted. And we do understand, I mean, research came out in the 70s showing that the pill actually affects our nutrients in a big way. So like vitamin C, vitamin E, selenium, so antioxidants, minerals like magnesium, B vitamins like folate, B12. Um, what's interesting is there is a formulation of the pill that had folate in it because they recognize that it leads to a deficiency in folate. And, you know, for most people, it's not going to be like this major deficiency where it's showing up, like no one's going to get scurvy. We're not pirates. We're not going to see like bleeding gums and connective tissue issues because you're having access to citrus or bell peppers or these other sources of vitamin C. But so I want to say one, we've had research for a very long time showing us it influences our nutrient status and it can lead to nutrient deficiencies. Two, we've had medical providers prescribing the pill for a long time, not getting sufficient nutrition education and out there telling women, just eat a regular diet. You'll be fine. You don't have to do anything special. I'm like, the standard American diet is the baseline for the worst diet in research, okay? If we want to have, like, what's the re worst re diet, it's going to be the standard American diet. So when you are a physician inadequately trained in nutrition, telling people who never were given education, because this should be grammar school level, like, we should be teaching people about nutrition, um, but you have people that don't understand that, and you're like, just eat a regular diet. Well, what the hell does that mean? What does that actually mean? And then telling them, like, don't take supplements because you're just going to, like, pee them out or they're just expensive poop. Well, yeah, because you don't have any training and you don't understand that there's a difference from a big box store vitamin than from a quality supplement that's formulated in a way so that you can absorb it. And so with that... Being on the pill absolutely does impact your nutrient status. There are doctors out there who will tell you, well, it doesn't matter, just eat this regular diet. They are looking for signs of deficiency because the, the most education they got is like scurvy and pellagra and rickets. Like that's what they know of nutrition is like this major deficiency that's gone on for long periods of time. And they've also been told like, we only ever see that in developing nations. The problem is, is there's not enough education happening from physician to patient about optimal nutrient levels. And this is something where, I mean, if anyone's ever like not felt normal and they go to their doctor and the doctor's like, but your labs look normal. Again, that's just looking for disease. That's just like, look, play worst game scenario and like, look for that. We do want to look for worst case scenario and we want to look for what is optimal because I didn't come here to live a basic life and I know nobody else did either. I want you to have optimal levels of nutrients, optimal labs, like optimal because you deserve to get what you came for in this lifetime. So when it comes to using the pill, this is where I counsel my patients like, look, if, if the birth control pill is what's best for you. Let's get your diet dialed in. Let's make sure you're eating a nutrient-dense diet. Let's make sure that you're getting enough fiber because your gut loves that. And your if your gut isn't right, like it doesn't, you know, as I said, and beyond the pill, it's you're not what you eat, you're what you absorb. If you're not absorbing it, like what does it matter? You can have like the, you know, the most expensive like diet body, like, you know, going I can't remember what the grocery store is that's going around on TikTok that I'm always floored where people are like, this is a $200 like omelet. And I'm like, what's happened here? You can buy all that, but if your gut isn't set up to actually digest, like forget it, you're not going to um, absorb that. Um, so on top of diet, I'd also say that you need to be looking at, do you need, do you need to supplement? Like I will tell you as somebody who aims to eat five to nine servings of vegetables a day, I still take a supplement. Um, I'm breastfeeding right now, so I'm staying on a prenatal, but I would still stay on a multivitamin because I just see it as an insurance policy. Like I am not like, look, I travel, I'm a mom, I'm working all the time. I'm not going to be perfect every day. And I don't want to go to bed worrying about like, did I get enough servings of vegetables? Like my diet wasn't perfect. Like I don't want to worry about it. Um, this is what's true for me, for people who are listening. Like I said, I also have autoimmune disease. So like I've got requirements that will look different than yours. So this is my long-winded way of, yes, the pill does affect your nutrients, and yes, you can do something about it. And if you are actively doing something about it, it shouldn't get the best of you. Thank you for explaining that. So besides the pill affecting people's nutrients, I should say, what else can the pill affect? Well, I mentioned mood, but we didn't really get into that. Um, mood has been something that has been complained about since the introduction of the pill. Um 
the history i will say of the pill is a dark one and i think it's worth everybody knowing like it first was experimented on in the women of puerto rico without their consent without them even knowing what they were taking and they complained of side effects one of those being mood and they were they were told that they were making it up oh man how long have we been gaslighting for and um that still plays out today is that doctors will say there's no research to show that birth control pills cause depression or anxiety. Now, I'm getting to the package insert, and the package insert's like, if you experience severe depression, you should stop this medication because there is a correlation there, and your doctor's not wrong. There is no study to show that it causes. So this is just, this is like how the research is set up. We can't say that the pill causes your depression, but you can say, I, I was fine. I took the pill, it caused my depression. And as a clinician, I can just honor where you're at. And I don't need to get into semantics about what the research says or doesn't because like the person in front of me just wants to feel better and doesn't want to feel at the mercy of these mood symptoms. I'm someone, I did the pill for 10 years. I'm a first generation college student because of it. I have multiple degrees. I'm a doctor. Like I got to delay my fertility, like amazing, amazing tool. I also spent a good chunk of time feeling incredibly depressed. I'd been started on one pill formulation and I couldn't get out of the shower. Like I remember just sitting crying in the shower and being like, what is wrong with me? And after going to my doctor, um, they switched my pill formulation and things got better. So that is to say that sometimes you can just change formulations and that does help. But with that, there's absolutely a correlation very, very severe form of PMS. Like take all of the PMS symptoms and imagine them lasting for 10 or more days and debilitating. That's PMDD. For some women, they start the pill and their mood symptoms and everything get better. Not all women does that happen for them. For other women, they start the pill and it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. They can't get out of bed. They've lost the joy in their life. They are, you know, they're depressed and they're hating life. And they're being told like, this is, this is the best we got. Because when we look at, you know, roughly 60% of women using for non-pregnancy issues. So they're not trying to prevent pregnancy. It's for symptom management. That's where I came in with beyond the pill. And I'm like, if you want to do the pill, here's everything I want you to know and how to stay safe on it, feel your best on it, make it work for you. But if you're one of those people being told I have P you have PCOS, you have endometriosis, you have acne, you have PMS, this is all we got. This is all you have. I want you to have solutions beyond the pill. Like, I believe that you deserve to have all the options and get to choose. And if you choose the pill, then we should support you. And if you choose another way, then we should support you. Life doesn't have to be this, this all or nothing that medicine tells us. I love that. And it amazes me that today, I mean, maybe 15, 20 years ago, that was the case. But it amazes me that today people or doctors are still prescribing the pill for acne and for PCOS and for these things where we know there's other things that could help. So this lends into the myth that birth control causes infertility. Like if you take it, you're going to be infertile in the future. Like hands down, everybody, this is true um, kind of story that gets played out. And in reality, what happens is that there's conditions like PCOS where Someone comes in, they have irregular periods. Their doctor says to them, do you, you want to have a baby? They say no. Their doctor's like, great, here's the pill. If and when you ever do want to have a baby, we'll deal with it then. And they ask about their fertility. Their doctor's like, you'll come off, you'll get pregnant right away because you're 14. And like, yeah, you'll be fine. But here you are at 38. And nobody ever told you that those irregular periods that you were having, that acne you were having, those PCOS symptoms, that was actually due to PCOS. Now you're getting the diagnosis for the first time at 38. You can't get pregnant immediately. And oh, by the way, you have hyperlipidemia, you have high cholesterol, you have cardiovascular issues, you have insulin resistance, or it's going that direction. You have all these chronic diseases that are developing. Don't worry, we'll watch and wait when they get bad enough. We have a medication for you for that. When... All of that could have been prevented by telling the 14-year-old, and like, look, I was 14 before. I thought eating crumb donuts was a sufficient lunch once upon a time, so I don't judge anyone for that. And I'm not I'm not delusional about how 14-year-olds operate, but feeding that information on a repetitive basis of like, you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, this is well-managed with nutrition and lifestyle, like, and having those conversations, letting them know. Getting pregnant may not be easy for you. It's not mean that you're going to be infertile, but 
it may be a situation where like we need you to come off of this a couple years before and start to prepare your body and start to do things so that you know you have uh, better outcomes and maybe you don't even want to be like why are she even talking about this i don't even care but we could have that conversation of like you're going to be at higher risk for depression anxiety cardiovascular disease hyperlipidemia high cholesterol um diabetes like all of these things are possible because you have a metabolic endocrine condition that usually just gets treated as a reproductive health issue and we can be doing a lot along the way to monitor you like even if you can't be there as a doctor making sure that they're eating their best and exercising all of that you can be monitoring them. You can be making sure that their insulin is where it should be, that their cholesterol is where it should be, that, um, you know, they are aware of the, you know, potential cardiovascular risks that could come in the future. We need more doctors like you that can empower these women and educate them. And I'm hoping more and more girls are becoming educated and at least asking questions and wondering if there's anything else out there that will help them. About Mm -hmm. the pill... Are there long-term side effects with it? Are there long-term effects after you come off of it? You know, there like this is an area where we need a lot more research because um, as it is, so the pill was only designed to be on it to space pregnancies. In fact, you were only allowed to get the prescription if you were married initially. Like, so it was meant to space pregnancies, but to be used for a short, short-term period of time. And um, and it was meant for just that, pregnancy prevention. And then we figured out that like, if you suppress all these hormones, there's hormone symptoms that can go away. And then women just started getting left on it for decades at a time. And then being told that, like, you know, you never need to take a break. And you really don't because... You don't need the withdrawal bleed. It's not a period on birth control. The reason why we need periods, I mean, that's a a huge topic. You need periods for ovulation, for shedding the endometrial lining. Like it's it's so much more complex. What's going on in the pill is you just withdraw from the medication and have a bleed. You don't really need to do that because you're not building up the endometrium in the same way and there was never any ovulation. So with that, um, you know, coming off of the pill, we can see that the issues that you had before those can come back. There can be new issues that come up as part of post-birth control syndrome, which is basically a bucket to, uh, to to put the things that just like can't be named or we can't figure out what's going on. Like sometimes it looks like PCOS, but it's not actually PCOS. Like I came off birth control and the first time in my life had missing periods, had cystic acne. And my doctor was like, this looks like PCOS. It must be PCOS. I do not have PCOS. Like I do not. And like my insulin has always been amazing. Thank goodness for that. But I've, I've also had over two decades of being in the nutrition field (laughs) to make sure that that's the case. So I just want people to know that. Um, I got a head start in my early 20s on all of this. Um, But, you know, in terms of like long term, you know, side effects, there are things that the research has questioned, like, you know, do we are we going to have any kind of neurological stuff that comes up from we, we don't actually know what happens when you're never exposed to your natural progesterone and that doesn't stimulate the brain and like could so as of right now, I cannot say that like, yes, that's going to be a problem, but it's a big area where we have a gap in research and we really don't understand. We do understand some things like the elevation in sex hormone binding globulin is, um, that doesn't just go away in some women, it remains up. And so just because they come off doesn't mean that their libido will return without some effort, without some intervention. Same with mood symptoms. Sometimes the depression comes on while on the pill, you come off and it gets a little better, but it's never quite who you were. That's not to say that like you are forever changed and nothing can ever go back to good or feeling great. Like, no, but it is to say that there's definitely some effort that can be done in preparing your body to get off the pill and supporting your body once you're off it. That's interesting. And actually, that was my next question is when women want to go off the pill, do they just stop or are there things they should do beforehand? Yes. So if you started the pill because you had symptoms that you want to go on, like acne, um, you're going to want to give yourself three to six months of really prepping your body. I talk all about this and beyond the pill. And that is eating a nutrient dense diet lined up, giving your liver what it needs to, to detox those hormones as it does best, and making sure that your body 
is really given like the best foot forward to come off those hormones and start producing its own. Um, if you start the pill just for pregnancy prevention, that's something where you can come off of it. Really, you can finish the pill back or you can stop at any time. And what I recommend is doing, so Beyond the Pill has a 30-day program, like going through that as a way to really support your body and getting back on track. And I think it's important to understand, you know, I have this chapter in the book that I call the hormone birth control detox. And that was just, this whole chapter is all about like liver detoxification, how your liver naturally detoxifies your hormones and how that um, you know, it gets birth control out of your body as well. But I've seen some influencers take that and run with it and be like, no, you have to like spend six to 12 months detoxing birth control out of your body after you come off of it. And I'm not that that's not what I was saying. It was just called the liver chapter. Um, and my publishers were like, you can't just call it a liver chapter. That's so boring. And I'm like, I'm pretty boring at naming things. Um, but so with that, uh, if you get beyond the pill and you read that chapter, that is all about what your body does naturally and then supporting your body in doing that. And because of the nutrients in particular that birth control impacts, those detox pathways can be affected. And it's always funny to me because I'll see doctors say, oh, your body, your body has a detox system. It naturally does these things. But then they're not talking about the fact that you have to drink water to be able to move things out of your kidneys and that you need fiber so that you can, you can poop and you can like get that, that conjugated estrogen out and how important your gut health is in terms of moving your hormones out or the nutrients that your liver actually needs to do its job. Again, it comes back to that, like, just eat a standard diet and you'll be fine. And I'm like, you really like you have a great opinion that you're giving here, but it's not an expert opinion because you don't have any training or expertise in nutrition. Yeah, that's so true. Okay. So now as a doctor, do you prefer one type of birth control over the other, or they all have pros and cons? They all have pros and cons. I mean, everything, every, everyone, if you are sexually active, uh, you know, and you want to use fertility awareness method, there is a risk that, um, and then your hormones override your, your part of your brain that's like, no, we're in our fertile window and you get pregnant. A lot of times with the fertility awareness method, which is tracking temperature, cervical mucus, um, your, your physical signs and symptoms of ovulation and avoiding that fertility window, women will say like, oh, I, my friend got pregnant with that or I got pregnant with that. When I dive deeper, they were using the pullout method while they were using fertility awareness method during their fertile window. And I'm like, that's one in five are going to get pregnant in a year using the pullout method. So you got to know your odds. You got to know the side effects of each of them. And you've got to ask yourself, if you cannot get pregnant, what is the best method for you? What are you going to stick with? You know, for some women, they go the copper IUD route because that has no hormones. It has a very high efficacy rate. Um, so you're not going to get pregnant as easily as some of the other methods like condoms or diaphragms. But um, with the copper IUD, if you have heavy periods, you have painful periods, you have endometriosis, that can make those things worse. So they all have pros and cons. And then you have to ask yourself, like, why are you using them? Um, if you're using them, presumably for pregnancy prevention, again, you want to be with the ones that work best for you. And that means as the least amount of side effects and that you can be successful with. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I have one last question about the pill. Will mm -hmm. girls know that the pill is affecting them negatively? Will they always feel it is what I'm saying. Or will the pill maybe be depleting their nutrients and minerals and things like that and they don't know it? That's a great question, actually, because you expect that like, oh, I'll just go on the pill. And then like, if I have symptoms, it's going to happen right away. And in fact, I see patients who, you know, they don't start having symptoms on the pill until like two, three years later, five years later, where they're like, this is problematic. I'm, you know, now I'm starting to get headaches and I never had headaches before. And so the best thing you can do is track your symptoms before you start birth control. I have all my patients track all their symptoms so they have a good idea. Like, what is your skin like? What's your digestion like? What is your period like? Um, what is your menstrual cycle like? Going through every system and really knowing and then that way, if anything changes in the future, they can always look back and say, that's a change. That's something that's different. And then we ask the question, is it related to birth control or is it something else? Because just because you're on the pill doesn't mean it can't be something else or it is also something else. 
So it really comes down to knowing your body, knowing how you feel, and finding a doctor that will listen to you, it sounds like. Absolutely. I think finding a doctor that will listen to you um, and partner with you is everything. I think that, that, I mean, if we could train clinicians to really respect the patient's story and the patient's journey and understand that like they're the expert in their body and the data they're providing is super valuable, I think we'd see a big change in women's health. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being here. You are a wealth of knowledge. I know my listeners are have just learned a ton, so thank you. But I do want you to tell all those that are listening where they can find your book, Beyond the Pill, and where they can pre-order your new book. Beyond the Pill and Is This Normal are sold anywhere that you can get books. Um, so please support indie bookstores, mom and pop bookstores, or you can go to Amazon. <laughs> I know that's easier for some people, but they are sold anywhere um, that you can get books um, with Is This Normal there and Beyond the Pill both have audiobooks. There's also a Kindle version as well. And you can also check your local library. If you're like, I just like to rent this and check it out. Um, you can do that as well. And again, if you pre-order Is This Normal, I wanted to say a big thank you because in a post-2020 world, uh, pre-orders are everything. People are running out of books. I've had so many friends that are like, my book sold out in five days and then they didn't get any more for another six weeks. The only guarantee to getting that price and making sure you have a book is pre-ordering. And so to say thank you, I have that free digital cookbook that is all about using food to get your your hormones and get those nutrients where they need to be to make sure that your hormones are optimized. And that's at drbrighton.com slash is this normal. I am so excited for that book. On my social media as well, I will tell people to go pre-order it because I know it's going to be fabulous. And what a great title for it and a great idea for it. So <laughs> I'm excited for that. I always close my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Mm, it's joy and laughter. Like, I just think that if you're not having a good time in this world, like, what are you, what are we actually doing here? Like that we were meant to have pleasure and to have joy. And I just think that we're not holding space for enough of that. You know what? And I think you radiate that on your social media. You just seem like you're always having fun and laughing about things and your dances and your reels and everything you do. You can just tell that you have found joy in life. And so thank you for sharing that with others on your platform as well as all the education that you share. Oh, thank you. Again, thank you so Bye. much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on and I'm so excited for your audience to get to hear this and uh, to get the book. I think it's all going to just be so fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.